2: Well, I've titled this particular message this week and next week, part one, part two, but it comes under the title of the kind of life the Holy Spirit makes possible for us to live. That's a long title. I get it. I know it. So I reduced it for the purposes for us to remember, and that is the Christian life at its finest. And to do that, again, I'm using that Aloha Tower illustration. I'm not able to go very deeply in all the Greek and take you to all the references in Scripture. You can do that through some great commentaries. And if you want to know which one, let me know and I'll give you a couple of them. But here's what I do want you to know. That there will be seven mountain peaks, we might say, the seven high points of the Waianae Mountains. What will be the seven? If I could only pick seven truths, obviously there will be a lot of verses under these seven. These would be the seven. I'm going to cover three this week, hopefully four next week, so that you will really own the seven great truths. I'm going to do it with a negative and a positive. We're going to talk about the negative this week, but each time I'll do it, I'll give you a positive with it so you know where we're going. We're going to talk about uh, that the life that when we're controlled by the Holy Spirit is a life without something. condition in our life, but also when we're controlled by the Spirit, influenced by the Spirit, prompted by the Spirit, we will also have a certain condition in our life. So we're going to have something that's not in our life. We will have something that will be in our life because the Holy Spirit doesn't just take stuff out without putting something even better in our life to bring us to a greater understanding of the Lord. Now, again, let me see if I can give this to you rather than in a seminary or chapel at a Bible college or seminary time. Um, let me ask you a personal question. You you, you might want to go to your fr- family members or friend with this, but I'd really like you to own it for yourself. I, I did that. You know, as a pastor, I'm growing, and I hope I'm growing, and I want to grow. I really do. I want to be more knowledgeable of the Lord. I want to be closer to the Lord this year than I was last year, this week than I was last week. I want to grow. Now, with that in mind, I would suggest that if you want this message to take on more of an applicable meaning rather than a theological one merely, then I would say pick out a hurt Hang-up or habit that's in your life. A hurt, habit, or hang-up in your life. Write it down unless you're afraid that someone might read that, especially if you're just going to um, give some of the surfacey ones, you might do that. Oh, I have a problem with, um, I'm grouchy sometimes. H- how many of you are, are grouchy sometimes? Raise your hand, okay? Every hand should go up, all right? We're all grouchy sometimes, <laughs> Carol sometimes is asked. Did you wake up grumpy this morning? No, I just let him sleep, you know? But anyway, um, I-, I don't want to be, th- I want you to go to the deep things. If I could maybe coin this word in an application would be the word iniquity. Something that is kind of like enslaving you right now. Something you just can't get over. Last week I threw out a couple words. Is it greed? You really have a problem with you gotta get 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 I want more, 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 more. Is it bitterness? You just can't release the people who have hurt you in your past or your present. You just can't give them a do over. You can say you forgive them. You can move past it because you're not as angry as you once were, but you can't love them like you did. You have not yet put them in a position they were in before they violated you. So you're carrying bitterness in your life. Is it maybe um moral impurity in your life? And that's why you don't want to write that down. You don't want to bitterness I can kinda of deal with. Greed, I don't know, that's a little tough. But moral impurity, uh uh-uh, uh 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 But some of you know what it's like when the lights go out at your house, the family is asleep, and you have that little glow coming from your computer. Or when you're all alone and you don't know someone can see you, you're looking at that. And so whatever that might be of some form of moral impurity, whether it's on a screen or you are really up close and personal to this in your own way, those are far more than just hurts, hang-ups, and habits. Those are sins. And so I just gave you three general categories, but please pick out the one that you have. Particularly the one that you've said in your own heart. You've said, I don't want that in my life. I hate that being in my life. And so every morning you almost wake up and say, I'm not going to look at that any longer. I'm not going to let that person cause me to get angry with that bitterness. I'm going to try to love them more. And so you work on all day long to do sin management. Instead of letting the spirit that we're studying. Found almost 20 times in the chapter of Romans we're going to study. And so I'd like you to look at this from a personal aspect so you can have victory. Now, again, a couple little foundational reminders, and then we're going to go almost verse by verse until we do run out of time today. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, I began to define for you death. And I said there are three kinds of death. And I'm generally speaking about this. So if you haven't got them in your notes, you might want to write them down. And I'm going to add a couple more to it, and I'll show you how they link. Death is important because you will find that word in chapter 8 frequently, all right? So first of all, you have what we might want to call the kind of death that is um, physical death. When Adam sinned, it brought his physical death. He didn't die right then, but he physically died. In other words, you, you, you can't go to the Middle East and still see an old man there with a beard called Adam any longer from way back in the garden, all right? He brought physical death to humanity, I don't know how many funerals I preached this last week. I did a memorial at someone's home, which was a one-year memorial. And the family came together, still memorializing the person that was dead and how much they wished that they could bring him back to life again. Adam caused that man to die. And since we are all in Adam, we die like Adam died because of his sin. All right, so that's what we call physical death. The second is spiritual death basically occurred at the same time, if you really want to remember that story, it's a biblical truth, biblical reality. When Adam sinned, what did he and Eve do? They started covering up their, you know, they covered themselves up so people wouldn't see them. They were kind of hiding from God in a way. And so we call that a spiritual death. Death in itself just means separation. My body separates from my soul and spirit. Spiritually, because I've sinned by nature and by choice, I'm separated spiritually from God. I'm dead in my relationship to God. I'm so dead that I can't do anything to make myself undead. Only the quickening or the making alive spirit of God can do that. It's a supernatural act that God does. So I'm spiritually dead. The third kind of death, all linked together now, is what we call an eternal death. That's the death that we experience that if I... Am born. My body dies. I'm living separated from God now. That's my spiritual death. But when my body finally dies, physically... I will then spend eternity, that's where we get eternal death, eternally separated from God. And then it's not just floating out there in not so good of a happy hunting grounds. I'm just kind of floating out there in my own little nirvana that I've created because I wasn't too bad. No, that kind of eternal death is I am separated from God for all eternity in a real place that's horrifically named as hell that I'll be experiencing that kind of hell, that kind of death forever and ever and ever. And the worst part about that is not only that what I'll be experiencing in that hell. It's being separated from God for all eternity. Now, those are the three kinds of death. Now, let me add two more because death just means separation. And I'm going to link it to sin. Now, if you recall, we have all that going against us, that kind of death thing going because of Adam's sin. And we are in Adam. And because Adam's sin, he brought the moral, moral, moral ruin of the human race. So now I inherited from him, in a sense... And nature, an old nature that will still have the propensity for sin. And watch. Sin brought death through Adam because of his sin. I already have all of that going against me. But now if I choose in this life to make choices that are anti-biblical or in disobedience to God, that death still reigns in me, as well as a couple others that are kind of all just thrown in there in this big pot of soup called death. For example... If, um, if I tell you a lie, okay, for that moment, hey, I felt pretty good. I told you a lie. You didn't find out about it. Nobody knows. You didn't get hurt by that lie. I just didn't want to hurt you. That's why I told you a lie. So I kind of covered it all up. But now let's say you find out that I lied to you and you know that I prevaricated. You more than likely in our culture here probably won't say anything to me. You might say something to someone else about me, stink talk me. But regardless of all of that, here's what has happened. Our relationship is not the same as it was before I told you the lie. If you agree with that, say, "Uh uh-huh. All right. Let me park on that for a moment. I know you're saying, when am I going to get into Romans? I don't know. We'll get there today sometime, hopefully before I have to close. When you deal in counseling with people, especially married people, but the illustration is more with married, but it can be applicable anyway. When people come into my office and they say, you know what, we have a communication breakdown. We just can't communicate any longer. When I probe that a little bit, here's what I find out. The communication problem that they have with each other is generally because they have lost respect for the other person. Catch that. When you lose respect for someone, you lose it because you've lost trust in that person. If you don't trust them, you don't respect them. If you don't respect them, your conversation, your communication is generally very shallow. You're mature enough because you're not like little children. You can talk to them at church. You can talk to them at home a maybe a luau or something. You can talk to them on the job or at school or wherever you are. But in reality, you do not have the intimacy, intimacy going on. You can't communicate. And so that's why we might call when we sin with others... That's a social sin. That's a relational sin. But it also is a relational death. There's a separation going on. And some of you now are living with people that you are not as connected to as you once were because either a person violated them or the other person didn't fully forgive them even though they said they did. And they haven't worked to rebuild the trust. All right, that's a social death. Let me give you one more. Again, it often ties in. Is this not true when you commit a sin, as a believer now mostly? You know you have. And you know you kind of have this little bit of yucky feeling. Not not a big yucky feeling, because it wasn't a big sin. But if you keep this thing going, pretty soon you have this thing going on inside of you. And I don't want to get too psychoanalys- analytical here, but there is a guilt thing that goes on, because guilt is not a function of the mind. It's a function of the spirit because you, right or wrong is established with God so it's a spiritual thing. But this psychological thing goes on within you and you now feel depressed, a little discouraged. You might withdraw. You might not want to be. All of a sudden, you are not the, the total holistic person that God, through Christ, bought and is shaping for his glory because this sin is separating you in some way. There's a death going on inside of you emotionally because you're still hanging on to that Iniquity of, maybe, greed, bitterness, moral impurity, or whatever else you might have jotted down in your life. So those are deaths. So I'm going to be speaking about that here. Now, I I mentioned last week that it'd be nice if you could understand the original language because when you deal with Greek, what Greek will do, it will not change a rose into a daffodil. What Greek will do will take the rose bud and it will kind of open it up into a beautiful flower. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at it in English. Sometimes I'm going to pull a petal apart a little bit so you can see, because I didn't even know all the Greek, okay? But just a little bit so you can see, because this chapter is so very rich. All right, now that's my introductory remark, so you've got to be back next week, so I don't have to repeat that again, so now let's get back into our passage. With that, let's look at the three words here. And These three words are important, three terms, and that is the... the, um, the kind of life the Holy Spirit makes possible for us to live is a life without condemnation. A life without condemnation. I hope you have your Bibles with you. If not, I put that in a little outline for you, but it's much better if you have your Bible in front of you that you can follow along. And I'm going to use these little glasses here if I can see a little bit better. We're going to look at verses 1 through verse 4. Again, dealing with those things in our life that are just making us feel so condemned. Verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, many people have that verse underlined because it reminds them again that they don't have to live in a condemned state any longer as a believer in Christ. I get that. And a lot of them know that on a surface level, but they don't know the, the, the context of it. Look in verse 24 of chapter 7. So just go up a couple of verses if you have your Bible open. Verse 24 says, after all this stuff about sin and self and all that junk going on in this person's life, Paul's life, he says, Wretched man that I am, who is going to set me free from this body of this death thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord now that's good so we all say amen amen but now what does that mean what does that mean all right through you know jesus christ now verse eight or verse one chapter eight therefore because it's through christ there is now underlying the word now in your bible now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus before i unpack the phrase no condemnation i want you to see the phrase in christ jesus If you were to take this in him, in Christ, in Jesus, that whole concept of in Christ, you're going to find that it is extremely popular with the Holy Spirit who prompted many of the writers of the New Testament, particularly Paul, predominantly, to use the phrase in Christ. He uses it almost 160 times. And that tells me that if I need to understand, if he says it that many times, what does it mean to be in Christ? Does it mean to be in church? Does that mean to be in my, my, my small group Bible study? What does it mean to be in Christ? If you recall, many times before, I've used that simple little illustration here about uh, the Bible being um, Christ, this piece of paper here being you and me. We're all sinners. When we place our faith in Christ, we are then accepted. It's like Christ comes to us. He accepts us in the Beloved One. We're in Christ. So we are totally in Christ. We can't get out of Christ. He won't kick us out of Christ. Now when God looks at us, he sees his righteousness. We are in Christ. Now, remember this is the chapter of victory. So. Verse 1 says, in Christ. Go to the very last verse of chapter 8, so you can mark it down. Those of you who may want to run a line from verse 1 to verse uh, 39, as you have. And you're going to see how beautiful this is. It's like a pair of bookends. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Us who? Those who are where, everyone? In Christ Jesus our Lord, in Christ. So, again, this book... Is written to Christians, particularly chapter 8, reminds us that the main context, the, right, the readers of this, those that it's addressed to, would be people like you and me right here at International. And the bookends would be in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So let me find out how many are in Christ. Would you raise your hand right now? If you were to die, i want to find how many are Christian now. If you were to die today, how many of you are absolutely certain that you'd go to hell? Okay, that means you're not in Christ, okay? how many you're positive because you've trusted Christ as your Savior. You're going to heaven. You raise your hand. In Christ. So what I'm going to be teaching here, I'm going to almost give you kind of a double teaching going on at one time. I'm going to say this is how it speaks to those who are unsaved and what happens when you get saved. But also I'm going to tell you this is very important. Now, listen, this is very important. How you as a Christian ought to live because you are in Christ. Sin has been put to death. All that has been passed in your life and you can live a victorious Christian life. So you don't have to, here it is, you don't have to live the results of sin in your life every day. Why? Positionally it's gone. Practically you can put it down because you have the power and you can live a life with a lot less sin going on in your life. And that's what we call progressive sanctification. Write it in your notes. So there is no condemnation. Now with that, let's open this up a little bit further. When you see the word now, no condemnation, if I talk to the position that we're already perfect in Christ, the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, according to John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, John chapter 5, verse 24, just in John alone, it says you are no longer under condemnation. If you have not trusted Christ as Savior, no matter how good you are, you're still underneath the condemnation of the Lord, and you'll spend eternity condemned forever and ever. Some translation says that you're judged, but the better translation is you are condemned because you are a sinner by nature and by choice. But more specifically in John, it says because you just haven't believed in Christ alone for your salvation, you are condemned. So since it's written to Christians, Romans 8, that's why it says, Therefore now there is no more condemnation, to those who are in Christ Jesus so you can say, I'm not condemned. Would you say that out loud? I'm not condemned. Now, that's a half-truth, though. Now, positionally, letting my right arm here represent our first birth... My second arm over here representing my new birth in Christ. When I trust Christ as Savior, my new nature, what I have over here, this will never sin. I'm no longer under any condemnation. But because I still have the old nature, albeit it's been put to death positionally, it's still very much alive. It has a propensity. I could walk according to these things. It can still kind of drive me at times because I still have that old Adamic nature going on inside of me, whether you want to call it flesh or not, and start parsing all of that. So I still have this thing going on. So while eternally I'm not condemned, and while now I'm living not condemned for heaven's sake, I am still condemned because of choices I make based on my sin nature that I have. So I still have issues dealing with my day-to-day. I'm underneath the discipline and the condemnation of the Lord. Now I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you are still living today paying an earthly price as a consequence of bad choices you have made in the past? Now I don't want you to raise your hand. But I think if you went down memory lane, you can say, see, I still have some judgment going on in my life. Not for eternity. I still have this going on. But now because I'm in Christ, God now delivers me from that condemnation and he gives me now the power to live a life free from that in my daily walk with him. Now let's go a little bit further. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit, so I hope you have your 10-speed hearing aids. you ready? Here we go. Verse 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. So here we have the spirit of life in Christ. When you trusted Christ as Savior, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You have that, and now you are in Christ, and you've been set free from the law of sin and death. Because remember, that sin, the flesh, all of that creates a separation in your life as an unbeliever. And even today, you can live a life... In, ex- in certain ways, our sin separates from the Lord. You'll understand a distance from God. Some of you express that from time to time. But when you deal with that sin through confession, forsaking, there's that intimacy that's restored with the Lord, not your salvation. The joy is restored, not your salvation. But the joy of your salvation is. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, because what? The law can't make me perfect. Weak as it was through the flesh... Referring to my old nature here, through the flesh, it's weak. I can't do anything. My old, my old man can't do anything. He can't keep the law. God did for me. What did he do? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That doesn't mean likeness of sin, that he had sin in him. It's the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Boy, does that sound like a lot of gobbledygook, doesn't it? Well, look up here. Let's see if I can make it clear for you. All right, look up here for just a second. Again, using my arms, all right? This time, we're going to let my left arm over here represent Jesus Christ as all God, totally God. We're going to let my right arm over here, it's going to represent the humanity of Christ. So over here is the deity of Christ. The other arm is the humanity of Christ. You're going to find that Jesus Christ... He was both human and God at the same time. The term they use is hypostatic union. Philippians teaches about that. Hard for me to fully uh, explain to you. We can get a little bit further down the road in knowing it, but you'll never know all of it. And theologians have not so much debated it, but they've been investigating this because it's such a deep and wonderful truth. And some of you say, well, if you don't have it all together, uh, can we ever really get it all together? There's stuff about God I don't have all altogether yet. I hope by next year I'll know more, but I'll never know all. And if I don't know all, I'm okay with that. Hear what I'm saying. If I don't get God all in a box, it's okay. Because if I can put God in a box, then I'm bigger than God because I can make him be what I want him to be. So I don't have to understand everything. Now stay with me. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, here's what he was. The flesh part being, he still had humanity with him. He got hungry, he got tired, he... he um, um, Thirsty, we heard. All right, so again, you look at Christ, he still has the human functions. But what he didn't have is he had all of those, but without sin. You and I have all that he had, except we have something he didn't have, and that was sin. He did not have a sin nature. He was perfect. So let my left arm over here represent the deity of Christ. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died satisfying. The the, who died on the cross was the flesh, Jesus Christ, on the cross. When you hear someone say, oh yeah, I believe, I believe in God, God died on the cross for me. Listen very carefully. God didn't die on the cross for you and me. Now, am I saying that Jesus wasn't God? No, I know probably what you're trying to say when you say God died on the cross. You're trying to give deity to Christ, which is good. But God didn't die on the cross. What died on the cross was Jesus. And what about Jesus died on the cross was the humanity at that moment where he took upon him all the sin of mankind. And he satisfied that payment before a righteous and holy Father God in heaven for you and me. And so when he did that, he suffered, watch this, all the condemnation, both eternity and even now for us, for what he's done for us on the cross. And so again, it's a glory to the Lord for this phrase. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now that us is referring to those who now trusted Christ. Then it says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that phrase is a very interesting phrase. According to the flesh and in the flesh are basically two different things. Now watch carefully. An unbeliever is in the flesh. They can only do what the flesh can do. The flesh is depraved. The flesh may do some nice religious things. The flesh may do some nice earthly things. Help little old ladies cross the street and all of that. And all of that is really good. But remember, that doesn't please God. What pleases God, it says, it's only faith that pleases God. Hebrews says that. So now what it says, we, in the flesh, that flesh, in a sense, been put down when Christ died and we believed in Him. Now, we can still walk according to the flesh. We can make choices according to the flesh. I don't think I have to unpack that. All of us know that there are times we've said things we shouldn't have said. There are deeds we shouldn't have done. There are deeds we should have done because our flesh just kind of got away from us. So walking according to the flesh. But that doesn't mean we are unsaved. It just means that we're human. The unsaved has that. But we are walking according to it even though it's been put to death by Christ at the cross. So that's what we say that... um, we a life without condemnation. If you want to know what the positive of all of that is, that we have a life with peace, put that in your margin. I don't want you to just see we don't have condemnation. I want you to see that because of what Christ has done for us eternally, and now, that we can have peace with God. Now, this is something for some of you that you want to go a little bit further. Let me just throw this out, dig a little bit deeper. There are many different pieces found in the Bible. I don't mean pizzas like um, mushroom and pepperoni pizzas. I'm talking about pieces, all right? One piece is what we call the peace of God, and the other is the peace with God. We talk about the peace with God, it goes like this. I have God and me. God was angry with me. We are enemies. He loved me, but there was anger going on. I was a sinner. There was an enemy of God, all right? I have no peace with him.